They want to see how you act, what you wear, how you dress, what car you drive. I know it sounds funny, but people still judge on, on that way. I remember when I started going to open homes, I hid my car because I drove it and parked it around the corner. This was such a dingy little, you know, $3,000 car. This is the Think Big Property Podcast. When Young earns means from property development and Tyrone, that's me, has millions of questions. In this episode, we're going to focus on more strategies for finding amazing deals including tips on some of the do's and don'ts when dealing with agents as well as discussing alternative research methods which might give you a leg up on when looking for investment opportunities. In the last episode, Nyang and I covered the basics of a lot of topics like where to find deals, how to contact owners and what to expect from agents. Now in this episode, we're going to get really into those different topics and unpack them starting with agents and how to best approach them. I think with anything, you got to treat agents just like human beings. I know it sounds funny but sometimes when we talk about buyers markets or sellers markets, these agents, their posturing can change especially when it's a seller's market. Um, you know, they can puff their chest up and they and sometimes act like they're God because they have the listing. And, and I completely get that. They're human beings. Everybody wants a piece of them. Everybody wants to buy their property. But at the end of the day, once they've sold that property, they need to find another listing. So um, th- that's one thing. Another thing is the market doesn't always uh, act in the buyer's market uh, or the seller's market where it does go up and down and sometimes it's a buyer's market as well. So I think the key thing with agents is building a relationship with them, getting to know them as a human being um, and sometimes with any industry, there's good ones, there's bad ones. Um, sometimes they'll tell you the truth. Sometimes they'll lie completely through their teeth just to one, get the deal across the line or two, um, get you to pay a higher price. So um, obviously, you've been an agent yourself there, Tyrone. I've spoken to thousands of agents in my lifetime. I, I think um, that, that those are fair comments. What are your thoughts? Oh, yeah, it's very true. And it depends also too how long you've been in history as well too. So if you're just starting out between zero to six months, you're still very green. You're learning all the scripts. You're learning how to deal with people and buyers and vendors and stuff like that. So it's very, very common that um, you start fumbling your way, you, you might say the wrong thing and I think I, as developers and investors, they do pick up on those things as well. So sometimes those really, really green agents who are just starting out are also very hungry so they may get really good deals and you may be able to sort of um, leverage that and I uh, guess good, get good opportunities through them as well. But then with the more experienced ones because they've been around for a while, they know the area very well and in my preference, you know, not saying that the new ones are not usually that good but it's just I guess with the more experienced agents, they know the vendors, they know how the market is, they've been through cycles so it's easier to be able to work with them and if they sort of, if they know that you are an investor and that you've got more I guess opportunities to be able to purchase more properties, then they'll keep coming back to you. I'll give you an example actually from as an experience when I was working for one of the larger real estate agents, we used to have this regular client who was an investor. She'd buy you know, regularly at least three or four properties minimum a year through, um, through us and you know that she, any deals that we send her, she's got money ready to go as long as it actually meets her criteria. So those kind of deals are very good and if you have say you know, five or six of those investors on your books as an agent, gosh, you, know, you just have to find the right deals and you make a commission very, very quickly. 
So I think it's really both sides. If you build that strong relationship with the agent and they do have a deal that matches that criteria that you want, for them, it's an easy sale because then they don't have to go and spend all that time to do the marketing. Then they don't have to spend time convincing the vendor that you know they're going to sell the property. They don't have to work so hard with the buyer because they know the investor's got money ready to go. So it's so, so important to look at it from that point of view and agents like that. So keep that in mind and I think that makes it easier to help find deals but once again, it's it's about building that relationship. You can't just expect that, you know, you call them once and they'll send the deals across to you. It's constantly being on the phone with them, just nicely, gently chasing them up and asking, have you got anything? And after a while, they realize, okay, you're a pretty serious investor because you're constantly there. Exactly. And I think what Tyrone's saying there, which is um, reading between the lines, is it's not always about price. Like some of the agents for sure, if you're off fighting between 550 and 565, uh, depending on their relationship with you and the relationship with the owner, um, they may convince the owner to take the 565 or the owner will take 565. But if you've got a good relationship with them and you can assure the agent and you've done transactions before and your finance is good, then if you, they might push the 550 if that's yours it might be lower but it is a more of a sure thing so i think that it's not just price uh, sometimes it's just about your ability to convince the agent that you are the real deal and you are an investor as well because if let's say you're an investor as opposed to owner occupier owner occupiers yes they may pay more in terms of price because they really 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 want it however an investor um, if you let them know that you're an investor and that potentially if you are going to sell it, you'll consider selling through them. Agents want listings, right? Agents want listings and they want to transact. So the more transactions they make, the more profit or so the more commissions that they make and the more money they make. And if they don't sell, they don't list, they, they can't sell. So I think that that's part of the relationship building with an agent is letting them know you are an investor, what your plans to do with it and potentially um, leading them in an opportunity in their mindset because they're human beings. They have needs and wants and desires and their desires is to resell the property and sell it again. If they could sell it 10,000, the same property 10,000 times to 10,000 people, they would because of <laughs> the commission structure that they're on. That's absolutely right. And also too, as Young has pointed out, it's not just necessarily about the price, it's also terms. So if the vendor is motivated and they need to sell, if say for example, standard settlement is like six six weeks but they can, you, as an investor, you can settle within say three weeks and depending on you know your situation and your finance and your legal and all that kind of stuff, the vendor would be more than happy to take it on a four-week term. So I think you've got to also see what will it be that you can actually create a win-win situation for both the vendor and the agent and, and we've definitely covered this already in one of our previous episodes which you can jump back and have a look at it. and we talked about how to talk with agents, how to negotiate it, how to actually put great terms in place but it, it's also a thing we just want to I guess remind inside this particular episode is that it's it's all about those relationships and I know we keep hounding on about relationships but it, it's so, so important and once you know that happens then everything sort of starts to fall in line. And as we said in the previous episode, it's just one of the many strategies that you've got to have in place to be able to get the deals coming through to you. As a developer as well, if you think about it from my point of view versus the agent's point of view, let's say I buy a block of land off somebody for $2 million, I subdivide it into 5, 10, 20 blocks. Uh, that agent with the transactions, there, if, if they sold it to an owner-occupier who bought it, moved into it versus a developer, 
uh, and bought the site and then retransacted through them, they're going to make a lot more money short and long term. So I think it's like the repeat business that I talk about there and being able to sell that dream to them. Uh, I think the other thing is coming back to going to those open homes um, and building that relationship face-to-face. Once you've got that face-to-face relationship, you can continue it over the phone. Uh, But initially, that face-to-face can be very important because they want to read you. They want to see how you act, what you wear, how you dress, what car you drive. I know it sounds funny, but people still judge on, on that way. I remember... When I started going to open homes, I hid my car because I drove it and parked it around the corner because it was such a dingy little you know, $3,000 car. But these days, I'm not afraid anymore and it doesn't matter what kind of car I drive uh, in front of them. You know, I've got a work car and then I've got uh, a play car, you could say, and the work car I just park in front. I don't care. I'm the developer. Um, all they need to know is who I am and how much um, transactions or what stock I've got. So uh, once you move to, to that point, then people don't care. But initially, they do judge you. Um, what's your feedback on that, Tyrone? Yeah, that's very true. And also too, it's very easy to judge an agent, you know, especially when you've got a, an agent who's driving down with a Merc, you know, you've got a, a convertible, you know, down like that. And you go, oh, this guy's quite successful and must be selling good properties. <laughs> I remember that when I was watching, uh, yeah, one of the top agents in my agency, you know, he was a young young guy actually. He was actually probably young, young as young as I was actually. He was like early 20s but then... Because I, I, it was a family business, he'd been in the industry for at least 10 years um, because he started at a very young age and uh, he, he had on average about 20 listings per month. You know, this is a lot for, for a fantastic agent and he had a, a PA who actually helped him, all that and this was going back to the days when we used newspapers because I remember every Saturday morning we'd come in, he'd have three of the different newspapers on his table, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Daily Telegraph. And then I can't remember what the other one, it must have been closed down by now because the news, newspapers are not very popular nowadays. But we'd always go and, and he'd sit with me because he, he was my mentor and he'd open up the paper and let's start circling out his own listings first because he wants to actually see how many listings have been you know, shown out there. Then he'd start circling around all the listings that are around his as well. And uh, he really, really heavily relied on the newspaper because even though we did have realestate.com.au, that was something that he was getting a lot of leads from as well. But no, I mean, it does really um, come back down to, I guess, first impressions and at the end of the day, if you could have a good first impression with the agent and they, they like working with you and you get along really well with them in terms of rapport, it'd be very easy, you know, just to establish further things to happen because once again, you know, if they sell to you but also you offer the listings back to them or the properties you're going to sell down the track, there's that long-term relationship established there and um, it's a win-win situation for everyone. Nyong and I move on to discuss the feasibility behind a deal and why it's important to work this out before selling on a property. Look, I think uh, in previous episodes, we've talked about transactional costs. Um, generally, um, we'll go through the basic buy and sell, right? Like a buy, basic buy, reno and sell is a really, really simple one. When you're looking at development, subdividing townhouses, it's not so simple. But a basic feasibility for a buy, reno, sell could be, um, for example, Uh, I I call it the 5% in, 5% out rule. So what that means is if you're going to buy something, it costs you 5% in to get in, let's say including stamp duty, finance fees, a bit of holding costs, right? It's 5% in and then on the outside, you've got 5% out and that's agent's commission of roughly 3% potentially land tax, um, management fees, insurance, etc, etc. So let's say you buy a $700,000 property, just buying it and selling it within a 12-month period, you're going to incur costs of roughly 10%, which is $70,000. So, excuse me, that's even before any profit 
for any renovation. So if you're wanting to incur or do a renovation, let's pick a number, roughly 10% for the renovation. That's another 70 grand plus profit, right? So to buy a property for 700 grand and renovate it, hopefully, and you spend 770, uh, 70 grand on it, hopefully you're thinking you get at least 70 uh, back, which is 770, but you need to understand what that value of that additions, the new kitchen, new bathroom is going to be. So with a 10% rule there, ideally you want to buy uh, another 5-10% under market value to get the discount on the property because buying retail, renovating it and selling at retail, I believe most people will probably break even, if not more definitely, lose money. Yeah, so so the basic feasibility to allow for at this point in time is buying it um, at 10% under market value, you'll break even. So that's where the skill in the negotiation comes in. That's where the skill in buying from a motivated seller comes in. That's where the skill in buying directly, potentially from an owner as opposed to an agent, you get a better price there as well as the add value. So you really, if you're going to spend 50 to 100 grand, you're wanting to get double if not triple that, um, you know, Potentially, if you're going to spend 50, make 100 to 150 on top of that um, based on what the market wants at that point in time. So, And then that's part of the market research. So what are your thoughts on those basic numbers there? Yeah, it's, it's really, really good that we've kind of put out really, really good basic numbers because I think people will want to actually do their own due diligence and also put a, pull that spreadsheet and do it all. But I think just basic numbers so that way you can see if this deal is worthwhile within you know first maybe half an hour as soon as you get it. So let's say for example, that example you gave us 700,000 was say the market value. If you can negotiate down to say 630, then that would probably be a, a good starting point to be able to offer at that point. And then after that, say you do spend 50K, 70K on that, it brings it back up to 700,000 and you're supposed to be making between 100 to 100,000 to 150,000 I should say on top of that. Therefore, by the time you actually put it back on the market, it should be able to sell for around about 850,000 to be able to be profitable. And that's, that's kind of what I, I'm gauging from this. Now, I guess the other thing I wanted to also mention, it depends also too on what the ceiling is in that particular market. So, if no properties have ever been sold in that market for 850, then you'd be struggling to sell it later on at that price point. So, that, that's a big consideration that you need to look into and if you know, it might mean that you have to actually buy, hold and or buy, renovate and hold for a period of time until the market goes up then you know that may be a consideration that you have to look into but a lot of times because we want to be able to move the funds back in you know you want money in money out quickly um, to be able to take a profit and then move on to the next deal you got to you know do your proper market research to ensure that that is possible to sell absolutely and that's part of the market research and that's why coming back to our last podcast episode is definitely getting to know the marketplace, getting to know what's sold, getting to know what's on the market, what's coming onto market and yeah, you got to compare apples with apples, Sing, single lock-up garages, double lock-up garages, single carport, single story, two-story. Um, each of the, the property facets has uh, different uh, requirements and, and different values for people and, and that's why we suggest when you're starting out doing a buy, reno, sell or a buy, reno, hold is a good one because you're starting to get values of understand values of uh, end values of property and costs for renovations, trade people, the process generally.
Coming up after the break, we discuss the benefits of using softwares designed to help you crunch the numbers and which ones we recommend. Having the right tools is essential and it's like x-ray vision for property investors. So I definitely think that um, yeah, having access to those um, providers is critical. We touch on using buyers agents and the pros and cons of having them as part of your team. And I'd say 95% of the deals do not suit my needs and my client's needs. Um, but I've seen probably one deal a year out of each of them will come through with a smoking deal. Nong shares with us his tactics for when he hits a suburb jackpot. The initial three to six months I invested in there and figured out, yep, this is the area which I can do ones into two subdivisions or I can do renovations and then I'll stick to those suburbs and it compounds and pays them dividends year in, year out, year in, year out. And that's coming up in the Think Big Property Podcast. Nung and I begin to explore the different avenues to obtain quality, accurate data which you can use to your advantage when buying. There are actually other pieces of um, tools that you can access and I mean this actually might be a good time to talk about like say for example price find or RP data because that can also help you find uh, comparable sales and most of the agents and, and from my experience when I was an agent as well, I used to use RP data all the time because when I'm actually going out to present to a potential vendor who's looking to sell, they want to know what have been the most comparable and recent sales in the area and to be able to get that data, RP data or price finder actually shows local sales within say the last three months or so. You can actually go back for a very, very long time like going back to like 1970s and stuff because all the um, prices of properties have been documented there but I guess for local knowledge and for uh, recent sales and so forth, those are very, very good tools to be able to do that. Otherwise, I mean, if, if you can't afford to purchase one of these pieces of software, you can actually just track it on a weekly basis because there are results are released on realestate.com.au. Sometimes even the past sales on realestate.com.au is still there. So you can actually use that to do it. But to get the accurate data, you know, price finder or RP data is very, very good for that. What are your thoughts on that? I have to completely agree 300% and, um, and, and I emphasize that a lot coming back to I know the previous episode I know we just alluded to driving for dollars is what I would do is I'd print out historical sales for the last six months and then I just highlight them and I put them on a, the UBD or the Refidex that we used to call it or the Melways as they call it in Victoria yep and then I just get a highlighter and I'd go and drive past those houses because sometimes you can't go to the open homes during the week they might not be open or you just want to duck past on your way to work um, for a quick 10 minutes and it'll bring up the photo but you want to see it in person because the photo may not show or let you know that there's road noise or there's a rubbish tip next door or the neighbor's got car bodies or the grass is really long or the house has been neglected. So um, yeah, that, that's the thing is using that historical data and go, oh, okay, that house, I remember driving down a place and it was a really on a really steep hill. So um, and, and it had a steep driveway as well, but you couldn't really see that on the photo. So, yeah, printing out those comparable sales and doing the groundwork. I cannot stress that enough. It's doing the groundwork um, to see, okay, that house sold for 750000 or that one sold for 570000 and comparing, okay, these four houses in four different streets, why are they different? Is it because they're four-bed, three-bed, high-set, low-set, timber, brick, uh, those differentiations are important, especially when you go to buy 
and sell your own property, you know you're comparing apples with apples. And to take it one step further as we're developers, <laughs> we, we will also want to know what have been the most recent builds in the area and what's been completed as well too because that would also help us determine if we are looking to do maybe a duplex or build townhouses or units or whatever in the area, it's actually good to mark that. And that once again comes back down to your strategy. What is it that you want to actually develop? Are you looking to do you know, multiplexes or triplexes or whatever it is? And it's actually good to be able to go back and you can actually find out what has been recently sold, sorry, recently built and also put onto the market. And that data can be also found through council and also driving driving around the area because you'll know, you know, which ones are new. Once you drive past, go, oh, that looks relatively new. So I wonder when that was built. And you can just go back and find out through the council data that would tell you all that information. And and that's the beautiful thing that a lot of councils out there upload, you know, some of the things that have been completed. If it hasn't been closed off, they might even have uploaded all the DA plans. They may have uploaded all the engineering data. All that information is absolute gold and the reason why is because you can actually dig, dig down and find out who are the prospective previous builders, who are the engineers that have worked with and 90% of the time, those people are the ones who actually are focused in those particular areas and you'll find that if they're constantly helping you know, other developers in the area build those things, they would be you know, the better sources to go to. So just little tips there like that can be really, really powerful to help you know, a developer find out what's available to build in the area or what can be built. Oh, look, I think it's absolutely right. And coming back to um, that RP data uh, as well because I'm obviously uh, hot to trot on that is that don't feel like it's a short-term investment. It's definitely a long-term investment. Um, that data one, two, three, five years down the track will compound for you. Uh, I've got clients who focus on, let's say, half a dozen suburbs and they've been transacting on those suburbs again and again and again. And every time they transact, they get smarter. They know the market better. But um, the, it was the initial three to six months I invested in there and figured out, yep, this is the area which I can do ones into two subdivisions or I can do renovations and then I'll stick to those suburbs and it compounds and pays them dividends year in, year out, year in, year out. So I, I just can't stress enough that, that focus mentality. Uh, it may take you a month to realize that suburb doesn't work either. That, that's on the flip side and, and that's not a bad thing because if you can cut your losses and move on and realize, you know, this is not the suburb I want to focus in for whatever reason, you can move on to, and figure out the right suburbs. Because um, generally, I'm in probably half a dozen postcodes. Uh, out of those half a dozen postcodes, mainly three are my focuses. And um, yeah, you can make seven figures in, in three postcodes. I've seen it myself personally and other big developers who, who know the area. They know the agents. They kind of dominate the area to some degree. Um, and create a, an ongoing relationship with the owners and the agents who ongoingly transact in those areas. Yeah, totally. Actually, speaking of uh, RP data and, and price finder, for example, and we're covering this topic about um, sending out letters directly to the owners. If if you're interested to, for people out there, RP data and, and those type of services actually provide um, I guess more details and I'll give you some ideas of what kind of details they provide. They actually provide you, you know, how large the block of land is, how big the house is, um, you know, what type of bedrooms, bathrooms, car spaces but they also do provide the previous owners and when the last sold dates were. 
So imagine if you could actually take that data and email or not email but send a letter out to these direct owners and personalize it. Imagine the power of doing that. You know, you don't have to actually send it out to the owners who have recently sold but you want to send it out to owners who may have been interested in selling in the area, you know, surrounding the, the most recent sales. And instead of having to do a blanket drop of a thousand letters, you could actually do a very targeted letter drop, say maybe 300 a month or 400 a month to specific owners. Just as what Nyang was saying, 50 to 100 a week is very, very healthy. That might be a very, very you know, lucrative strategy to be able to get some potential deals out there as well. Having the right tools is essential and it's like x-ray vision for property investors. So I definitely think that um, yeah, having access to those um, providers is critical. So um, yeah, maybe we can put a link down the bottom for people to get a wholesale discount or something there. Um, Tyrone, see what, we, see what we can do. So maybe the other thing we wanted to say is uh, in terms of finding deals, perhaps using buyers agents. Have you had any experience working with buyers agents? I think um, buyers agents are like general real estate agents in the way that there's good ones and there's not so good ones and I think it just takes time to find them. Uh, I have had clients have done really, really well with buyers agents but with buyers agents, um, yeah, oftentimes if they're not on the ground, not there locally, it's very, very hard if they're doing, you know, surfing the net just like you. It just depends on what your needs are. Are you looking for time leverage? Are you looking for expertise leverage? Uh, I think, you know, each their own. I haven't had a lot of expert, uh, ex, sorry, good uh, necessarily experience with buyers agents, maybe one or two, but they've been developers themselves. So I think it's definitely what you're looking for, whether you're looking for an investment property, whether you're looking for a development site. Um, yeah, what, what are your experience there, Tyrone? Yeah, because I, 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 I've got a, a, a lot of buyers agents that I've worked with, had interviewed on to also the Property Investory podcast as well too. I've spoken to a number of them. I've worked with a number of them as well too and I guess the thing that I've noticed in the last probably say five to six or seven years or so is that it's becoming more, more of a trend to use buyers agents because one thing is that we're time poor. You know, I notice a lot of investors are quite busy. They're either working full time or they just don't you know, have the time to do the research and rather spend their time building a portfolio and, and doing other things instead they seem to leverage off buyers agents and it's only becoming more and more sort of common uh, totally about in Australia more recently. I know in the States, it, buyers agents have been around for many, many decades and people, you know, sort of <laughs> lean on them. You know, it's pretty much almost like God over there that they need a buyers agent to work with a real estate agent over there. But in Australia, it's it's a completely different trend. Most people think, oh, it's just a real estate agent. You know, they, they just go and buy property instead of, of selling property. But no, they're, they're becoming more and more... Um, prominent now because I think just due to trends in the market, people just don't have the time and people want more assurance to be able to negotiate a better deal because the thing is, if you're going in there and you're not experienced with managing and working with a, with a real estate agent, um, you potentially could be leaving money on the table whereas a buyer's agent, they have been trained on how to negotiate, how to actually manage the deal, even you know, doing all the contract, doing all the due diligence for you like running and building, doing the building inspection report, making sure that things are up to date and so forth. They're all training that and that's really the reason why people pay them to actually do those because it saves a lot of time because this due diligence stuff, like even just going out to look and research and become a, a, an area expert can take anywhere between 6 to 12 months to really, really know the area well and negotiate and so forth. You can shortcut that because this buyer's agent, uh, possibly if they've been in the area, they can do that all for you because they've been there already that 6 to 12 months. So, you know, it, there are advantages and 
and also some some disadvantages as well, which we won't go into too much in this episode. But it is definitely, I think, an option to have a look at to be able to find deals out there because you never know because they, they find things under market or off market because they've got already relationships with agents already. So, very powerful. Especially, actually, I should say doing deals remotely, they will come very, very handy too. Look, I've got three friends who are buyers agents and out of those three friends, I think um, colleagues, you could say, two of them I've seen probably once a year that they'll produce a smoke and hot property development deal. So, they're generally buyers agents that'll buy you know, duplexes or uh, ones into two subs and things like that. And, and I'd say 95% of the deals do not suit my needs or my clients' needs. Um, but I, I've seen probably one deal a year out of each of them will come through with a smoking deal. And you know, you're just adding that to the funnel, um, just like your letters, just like your flies, just like your normal agents. You're adding to the funnel. I, I don't think people um, should just focus on them um, solely, but I think it's just another way of, of getting deals. Um, and, and you need to be able to discern what's a good deal and not what's not a good deal and that comes back to the individual and their expertise. Definitely and that's where the basic feasibilities come into place as well. Last thing we probably would be loving to sort of talk about from this perspective as well is another way to find deals is through approaching developers because you know developers are already in the market, they may already have a lot of deals on their books but then they go, "Mm, I just don't have time to develop this one. Have you had much luck or success with um, working with developers to actually get deals from them as well? I have actually. I haven't done so much of that lately but I have done that in the past. Um, I'm surprised yeah, you've mentioned that but I'm pleased that you have at the same time is uh, sometimes yeah, developers will have trouble moving stock. Um, I, I remember that pre-GFC 2007, I negotiated 20 blocks of land off a developer and we did a wholesale transaction where we bought 20 blocks of land off him, off the plan and flicked them on. So, uh, another developer had trouble selling land and we were able to get those blocks at a wholesale price again it was only two blocks at this stage and we flicked them on made 20 grand each on those blocks by finding end buyers uh, for those blocks as well so i think yeah developers at times especially with the markets quiet or the markets yeah not not so crowded there's definitely times where they have to offload stock just to clear up some debt get some cash back um yeah to be able to clean up or consolidate that portfolio so i definitely think you know talking keeping those conversations open um is definitely an opportunity as well yeah, I totally agree and I think it's just really, I guess, busting that myth that developers don't want to work with other developers. It's not true. They're actually, you know, probably it could be one of your really best leads or contacts to be able to get further deals as well and if you approach it just like, you know, approaching an agent in, in the right way, you can actually develop some really, really good long-term relationships because at the end of the day, we're all here, to, you know, to, to make it win-win to also make sure that everyone can actually sell the property and help each other out and if a developer is looking to move their stock and down the track you're looking to move their stock, there might be opportunities to work together and do joint ventures as well too. I, I did want to also add or, or ask about finding developers though, like it's it's easy to say, okay, let's go and talk to developers but where do you find these because it's not like they just go and advertise out there and say, you know, I'm a developer. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think there's a couple of methods. Um, one is paying attention to the market, like driving for dollars. I think, uh, like I mentioned, if you're driving around and you're seeing sites um, being uh, developed, whether it's townhouses or subdivisions, it's doing that market research. Uh, other ways, like you've mentioned previously, is RP data or price finder and getting the details and sending them a letter or something like that. So I think it just takes a, excuse me, a little bit more research to be done and a bit more groundwork. But I think the other thing, segueing from that, is finding specialist agents. I know some agents that specifically focus on selling development sites or blocks of 
blocks of flats, right, or stratifiable flats as an example in the past. So, yeah, I think that's the other way if you're looking for developers is maybe looking uh, for specialist real estate agents who sell development sites um, directly or, or indirectly. Coming up on the next episode of the Think Big Property Podcast, Nyong and I move on to the ins and outs of land subdivisions. You don't know what the rules are um, and, and, you don't, and there's money at stake so you don't want to lose money as well. So there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of fear. We discuss the strategies which could help you with your first land subdivision. You don't have to you know, try to overtake or compete against other colleagues or um, investors in the marketplace. We share our stories around land subdivisions based on our personal experiences. We didn't really have the experience or the wherewithal or the capital or the intention to develop it but we had those options up our sleeve. And that's next time on the Think Big Property Podcast. See you then.